Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. On this episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, brought to you by the STS Workforce and Diversity and Inclusion, we talk with Dr. Tom Nguyen. Dr. Nguyen is the new Chief of the Division of Adult Cardiothoracic Surgery and the Helen and Charles Schwab Distinguished Professor of Surgery in the Department of Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Nguyen's story is an amazing one. It begins with his traveling to the United States as a political refugee from his native Vietnam, his family being embraced by the Houston community, his entering medicine and cardiac surgery, embracing innovation and new technology, inspiring the next generation with his impassioned teaching, and challenging leadership roles at University of Texas, Houston, and now UCSF, despite his young age. We also discussed one thing we have in common that is very unusual. Please enjoy. Well, thank you very much, Tom. We have Dr. Tom Nguyen here with us today, same surgeon, different light, and it is my pleasure to sit down and talk with you today. Thank you, David. It's a privilege and honor to be part of this series. And, and just as the title suggests, Same Surgeon, Different Light, I think there's a lot of chapters and layers to us that a lot of people don't get a chance to see. Uh, and hopefully this will give us a chance to explore um, all the surgeons in our community a little bit more than what we see on a, on a relatively superficial level at work uh, and in a professional environment. Exactly. And, you know, on that vein, uh, you and I actually have something in common uh, specifically in regards to your first name and my middle name. You, you want to sort of uh, let the listeners know what, what that is? Absolutely. Um, so I'm an immigrant and, and uh, very classic immigrant story. We came here for opportunity. We're political refugees. I was born uh, right before the end of the, the Vietnam War and uh, we grew up very poor in Houston. I remember uh, memories of eating rice and eggs growing up. I remember having to load up on rice and try to get full off the rice instead of you know, the meat just because we we're just so poor. As an immigrant, my first language was, was Vietnamese and I literally learned how to speak English by watching cartoons. 
And um, one of the first cartoons that I, I grew attached to was Tom and Jerry. So as you can imagine, when it came time for my parents to become citizens and I became a naturalized citizen, I was about four years old at the time, my parents asked me to choose a name and I had really no depth in, in that question at all. So I chose Tom from Tom and Jerry. Uh, but the interesting thing too is that as a four-year-old, you know, you certainly don't realize Tom is short for Thomas. And as immigrants, my parents didn't realize that either. So, so if you look at my, my citizenship form and, and some of the legal document, it's just Tom. And then if you look at any of the publications that I have or that I've written, uh, it's just listed as Tom. And every now and then people will try to slip into Thomas there, but, but that's not the case. It's actually just Tom from Tom and Jerry. You're the only other Tom, not Thomas, that I've, that I've actually ever met. And so that was uh, uh, pretty exciting. Was the other Tom also from Tom and Jerry? <laughs> uh, no, uh, Tom is my grandfather's name. And, you know, he was originally from uh, Louisiana, but he actually, he and my grandmother um, spent the uh, majority of their adult lives just outside of Houston, actually, in Kilgore. Yeah. And so he's, uh, he was T-O-M as well and, and not Thomas. But we're going to get a little bit into your story coming over from Vietnam because um, really you have a, a, a true Horatio Algers type story of that sort of classic American dream and narrative of coming here to this country and really becoming a leader uh, in your specialty. But I, I want to talk a little bit about your Twitter page. And I, I, I look in the, the, your description of your Twitter page and your, your bio, and you have six airport logos in your, in your Twitter page. Um, which I suspect is your, your pathway throughout your professional career. Um, and there's a seventh one there that you haven't put up yet, which would be you start off with IAH for, for, for Houston's airport and end with IAH, but I think you're going to add SFO because I want to congratulate you on being named the new chief of the Division of Adult Cardiothoracic Surgery and the Helen and Charles Schwab Distinguished Professor of Surgery at UCSF. Is it, was it a difficult decision to, to leave the confines of home of Houston and come to San Francisco? I know you've said right now you're living out of your suitcase in your in-laws apartment in preparation for the move. What brings you to San Francisco? Um, it, was, it was definitely a very um, difficult decision. Uh, Houston's home for me. I'm very lucky to be here. I have an incredible practice. Those who know me know me that I've spent my entire life uh, with as much labor, laser focus as I can uh, on being the best cardiac surgeon that I can be. And ultimately, I think I've made some progress on that road, but the decision was kind of factored, factored in another variable that in that I think in addition to being a cardiac surgeon, there's another dimension to me that I feel that is untapped and needs some growth. And, and that is the potential to be a good leader. And that's something, a very unique opportunity at UCSF that I, I, I wanted to explore, the ability to solve problems, the ability to resolve conflicts. These challenges are challenging, um, but something I, I really enjoy doing. And I think adds another layer and growth opportunity for me. Uh, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the opportunity. You know, solving conflict, and the challenges of leadership, you know, it brings us to your story you, you, that you touched upon. You came to the United States as a refugee from Vietnam. 
what, what is, you know, some of us may not even understand sort of that refugee experience and has been on some of the consciousness, at least in, in, the, in about four or three, three to four years ago in this nation. And there probably are some mis misperceptions about refugees and those seeking asylums. What was your experience in that? And how did it, how did it shape your view of how to live your life? Well, it's, um, it completely shaped my view of living my life. The, at the end of the Vietnam War, obviously my, my, my dad was in very active, military, active in the military in the Vietnam War. And knowing that um, the South was going to lose the war, there was a mass exodus because of the fear of persecution and uh, imprisonment. So my family came right at the end of the war to the United States as political asylums. Right now, there are a lot more Vietnamese in the country, but at the time, we were probably one of the first Vietnamese that put uh, kind of our feet into the soil. And, and, and getting here was not an easy process either. There's a lot of serendipity involved. It, it shaped my view in life in a lot of very profound ways. The first is I, I really believe that success is really not our own doing, but really happens from the support and mentorship from, from countless mentors and advocates. You probably wouldn't be interviewing me right now if my family didn't leave Vietnam in 1975. You probably wouldn't be interviewing me right now if, uh, if I didn't have to retake the MCAT because I didn't know how to study for the MCAT. And, um, you know, so, so I think a lot of that is success is really just kind of reflection of this, all these puzzles coming together. I kind of want to tell a quick story that really had a huge impact on me. I, I finally had a chance to go back to Vietnam after I, I finished my, my general surgery training. And I remember waking up at, at six or seven in the morning and going outside and, and seeing some young kids, uh, roughly my age, on a shipping boats and, and just really busting their tails. And I'm thinking, you know, that easily could have been me, right? I'm not stronger than them. I'm not smarter than them. But I just happened to get on a boat and happened to get across and come to the United States in 1975. So I think the reason why that's important is that I, I've been very fortunate uh, to, to be where I'm at now. But I think it's a very easy trap for people who succeed. And once they're sort of at the top to kind of pound their chest and say, hey, they did it on their own. I really believe that no one is successful by themselves alone. I, I, that, that doesn't happen regardless of what people say, but it's easy to get in that trap. And that people think of that very, very easily, very, very kind of, it's a very slippery slope. I think there's a lot of serendipity. There's a lot of circumstance. There are a lot of mentors. There are a lot of advocates. There are a lot of failures. And I do think failures help build success. But I think the ultimate goal and consequence of these things are two things that, that really impacted me. One, don't have an ego. Just remind yourself that wherever we're at, it's not your own doing, and it's a reflection of all the people below you. But and two, um, just as we didn't get here by our own doing, uh, I think it's really important. It's something I try to live my life by, is to try to pay it forward to, to kind of grease the wheels for others who may not have the opportunities uh, uh, afforded to them. You know, and you, you talked about success is not only our, our own doing, your father, I imagine, is a guide point for success, and he established a nonprofit organization to assist immigrants. But he also had a major trauma early in your life uh, in Houston. Discuss that trauma a little bit, and, and, and did that motivate you to enter medicine? You know, my dad was, again, in the military in Vietnam. He was an engineer by trade. 
And when he came to the United States, not speaking any English at all, he uh, it was hard to find jobs. And he worked at a lot of odd jobs. He worked at a convenience store. He worked as a welder. And at one point when he was working at a convenience store and we were being raised by, by kind of neighborhood nannies, uh, we didn't pay them. They were just kind of, we would be dropped off and, and the neighborhood would take care of us. Uh, he was actually shot in the chest and um, fortunately uh, recovered from that. But from that experience, from his hard work, from his ambition, I think really instilled in me the huge potential that we have in the United States. I think it's not a perfect kind of country. There's no perfect country. But if you think about it, you know, the U.S. is really the only country where we have a lot of progress we made, but where there really can have a story where an immigrant comes over with nothing and is able to become successful, whether it be in nonprofit organizations or professionally and eventually become a cardiothoracic surgeon. So that really instilled in me the uh, potential opportunities of the U.S., the, the resolve to work hard and the determination to try to kind of reach for, for these goals. He was a rock in our family and really kind of help pave the example on how we should live our life and, and the work ethic to, uh, uh, to approach things. And then recovering from that trauma, he then developed a nonprofit organization helping immigrants. Right. You know, so, the, so eventually he got a job at an engineering firm in, in Houston, obviously Houston's an oil and gas city. So he worked for an oil and gas company. But his real passion has always been community service. And Houston has the second largest Vietnamese community in, in the United States. And he became one of the leaders of the, of the Vietnamese community and developed a huge nonprofit for, for immigrants. The nonprofit has three major apartment complexes that are tailored for immigrants in the Houston area at kind of subsidized kind of housing. Um, they offer a lot of community service for immigrants to help them get on their feet. For example, health screening, uh, tax preparation, and um, a lot of outreach. Um, so I, I applaud him for, for doing that, you know, that experience for me ha has later on in my life instilled a desire to go out and, and reach out to other immigrants and even to travel to other countries and, and volunteer. You know, at, at one point, I lived in Africa for, for six, seven weeks, uh, volunteering, again, really trying to uh, help those that are less fortunate than, than we are. You know, my dad was an elementary school principal, and I helped out with, at the school quite a bit. And his sort of interpersonal interactions with students, parents, and teachers have sort of translated my approach for uh, interacting colleagues and uh, staff. You know, seeing your dad navigate the immigrant community for the better, have you translated some of those skill sets in terms of your patient care or even your approach to research or your, uh, your leadership approach? I have, you know, and, and again, I feel like similar to the, the theme of, of this interview, uh, I recognize that all the patients that we have, all the professionals that we interact with, there's a lot more layers and chapters of the stories that we don't see. And I, and I always remind myself when I approach a patient, I realize that, you know, there's a lot of layers that we're not seeing other than the coronary disease or the valve or heart disease that we're, we're trying to fix. You know, for the scrub tech that we're working with, he or she might be having a good or bad day. And there's a lot of reasons and layers that might be motivating that. A surgeon that you're working with may have bad outcomes, but it might not be the surgeon. It might be other factors. It might be 
He's not, he or she's not getting enough support structure. He or she's getting referred to different cases. So the, the situation with my dad and being an immigrant has really hounded on me that, that our life is complex and there's a lot of layers and you can't judge people on that face value alone. You really need to dive deep. And that's helped me as a leader. So, so when I talk to the, our, our team, you know, I, I try to explore, you know, what's going on at home. When I work with our faculty, I, I try to figure out, you know, maybe something else, just another dimension to why things aren't going well that, that we're not aware of. And similarly with our patients as well. You know, I think, you know, it's easier for us as we see a lot of patients and oftentimes we see them in the operating room and everything's covered up, but you know, it's not until you go outside and you see the family and the grandmother and the kids waiting that you realize like, wow, there's, there's a lot of uh, layers to, to this patient that we, we sometimes forget, but I always try to remind myself and, and I think it's really important to do so. And the family, the grandmother and everyone else are, yes. are listening to your every word. And they're, they're soaking up every word, every pause, right? You know, absolutely. So you were a rice owl. Yes. Right. Uh, uh, just uh, not too far where you're uh, the Texas Medical Center. Correct? correct. And then you moved on to Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, which is, you know, really one of our most traditional uh, high visibility, prestigious medical schools uh, in the world. How did you come upon surgery at Hopkins? Well, the, 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 first, the first thing I want to kind of touch upon a little bit is that you know, why leave Texas? You know, there's so many great programs in Texas that a lot of Texans stay in Texas and understandably so. It was an advice I, that I had from one of my mentors that you're, you might be able to appreciate this, uh, uh, being interested in sports, that, that you're not a championship team unless you went away from home. And, and it was tough leaving Houston and going to East Baltimore, but it was the right thing. And, and as you see from my training path, I tried to challenge myself as much as possible to, to get the benefit of learning from different environments. My interest in medicine, I think, was pretty easy. And I would actually kind of say, why not medicine? And I have this bias that, and it's a, it's, it's a strong bias, that everyone really wants to be a doctor, but they choose not to be a doctor for a lot of different reasons. They choose it because there might be discrimination. There might, they choose it because, they, they choose against it because of the length of training. They choose it because they can't afford it. But inherently, you know, what's there, what's there not to like about the privilege of medicine, right? You know, if, if you were to come to my office, David, you would tell me things that you might not tell your wife, you know, and we would do a physical exam and I would put my stethoscope on you and, and touch you in places that really no one has ever seen before. So for me, the, the decision to become a doctor was very natural and intuitive, but then the, the potential and the option to become a surgeon was even more, right? Because now you have that trust that patients are giving you, but also you get to go in there and see parts of the body that no one's seen before. You get to take tumors out. You know, obviously as a heart surgeon, we're defined by that first heartbeat that you see in the ultrasound, but a lot of our patients are 70, 80 years old. And for the first time in the past 70, 80 years, you know, we stop the heart and we yeah. do things to it. And it's pretty amazing. You know, we, you know, we open it up, we cut things out and it always amazes me every time the heart comes back. But, but it, it made sense to me that, that decision to go into medicine, but also the decision to, to be, become a cardiothoracic surgeon uh, was a, a logical progression for me. I didn't always know that I could become a cardiac surgeon, right? Um, there, you know, you always kind of wonder if you, if, if you have what it takes, but, uh, but I've always wanted to become one. And, you know, Hopkins is a rich surgical environment, uh, not only when you were there, but also today. 
and it's a, it's a and it's also a rich cardiothoracic surgical environment. Uh, wh who were some of the, the 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 players there that had effect on your decision to go into surgery? Well, hands down, um, Doctor. Again, going back to just mentors and and really kind of shaping you. Hands down, Doctor. Bill Baumgartner. Uh, he was the chief of cardiothoracic surgery at the time. And I was a first year medical student interested in cardiothoracic surgery, interested in surgery. John Cameron was the chair of surgery. And I tried to schedule an appointment to meet with John Cameron. I, I didn't get past his, his secretary, his front door. But I, scheduled, I reached out to Dr. Baumgartner. And within minutes, he replied back via email. And I met with him as a first-year medical student, a very undifferentiated first-year medical student. And he sat with me for, you know, nearly an hour just talking about the future of our field and, and how exciting uh, cardiothoracic surgery was and will be. Uh, that was very memorable. And I, and I appreciate that. And again, I, I feel that I'm not, you know, I'm here because of these doors that have opened up to me. And and, and again, I try to try to open up as many doors as possible to those who come knocking on, on my door, uh, asking for help and, and trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. When you were at Hopkins, did, did you feel the, the, the legacy of Vivian Thomas? Was, was that, was his uh, legacy something that permeated the students there? Um, at the time, not as much, but as I moved on to uh, understand cardiothoracic surgery more, I think I personally appreciated it. At Hopkins, there's this tower called the Blaylock Tower. And in the Blaylock Tower, there are these paintings of all the, the Hopkins chairs, including John Cameron and, uh, and, and Halstead. But in the corner, there's a picture of Vivian Thomas. And I always wondered who that was and after learning about it uh, was very inspirational. As I evolved in my career, a very coveted award uh, from the AHA is the Vivian Thomas Research Award. And it was something that really helped kind of underscore the important contributions that he made to our field. And, and, and I, I think kind of made more people aware of, of what, he, uh, what he's, he's done for us. So uh, after leaving Hopkins, you moved as probably as far west as you could without right. having to swim and, and uh, getting to Stanford. And, you know, at Stanford, again, it was your general surgery residency, uh, but Stanford, obviously, with this, this, the history of Shumway, has a rich cardiothoracic reputation and experience there. Right. You know, again, I, you know, again, trying to go back to the analogy, you're not a championship team unless you went, from, went away from home. You know, Hopkins has this phenomenal general surgery program, but at the time, it was still very traditional. At the time, people still wore the Osler tie and the Halstead tie every Friday. Uh, you rounded in uh, in the tie. I found that you know the most opposite of that culture was a place like Stanford, that was very progressive. You round in scrubs. You know, there's really no concept of white coat. People don't wear white coats there. Uh, it, it, to me, it was just completely opposite. And I, and I felt that it, it would expose me to something very different to, uh, to the training of, uh, of surgery. So uh, yeah, I was sold once I went out there and I knew that this is where I wanted to at least kind of start the next chapter of my life as a surgical trainee. And then ultimately you end up at Columbia for cardiothoracic surgery fellowship. And you know, we're going to talk a little bit about your pension for innovation, but was there a groundwork for that at Columbia? 
The um, at the time, I I thought I wanted to become a a transplant surgeon, and um, and Columbia was very well known for heart and lung transplant. So so that was one of the reasons why I I, I gravitate out to to New York. I also feel that that New York is just one of those magical cities, and everyone at some point, if they can get a chance to live in New York, it would be it would be very special. So so I, at the time, I was still single and didn't have a family and very mobile. So I, I took advantage of the opportunity to, to live in New York City and, and train at one of the top programs in the country. There's a saying that uh, you should, at some point in your life, you should live in New York, but not too long because you'll get too right. hard. <laughs> That's true. Point, you should live in San Francisco, but not too long because you'll get too soft. So uh, That's interesting. I like uh, that. That's that's no commentary on your new uh, position, <laughs> but um, hopefully uh, uh, we can edit this out before Dr. Sosa hears it. <laughs> so, and then and then finally a, a trans catheter fellowship at Emory. One thing I've noticed about you is that you are almost a savant when it comes to cardiothoracic and cardiac surgical innovation you have really pushed the envelope on uh, minimally invasive surgery, really using uh, fine techniques through small incisions to do extremely complicated surgery minimally invasively. And you unabashedly promote those techniques through novel ways, especially social media and videos and snippets. Sometimes you get, you know, you get a little talking to from industry saying, <laughs> don't criticize our, our equipment, and, but then you show valuable methods to problem solving rare complications. Um, how did you go from sort of the traditional training paradigm that we all go through to innovation and these innovative minimally invasive cardiac surgery? Where did you learn these techniques? Did you teach yourself these techniques and why bother? That's a great question, David. You know, when I work with residents and students, and even for myself, I the motto I always like to live by is to live your life like a chess match and try to think two or three steps ahead, right? And and you don't win by having the pawn take over the knight. You win by capturing the king. We need to keep that in mind. But to get there, you have to think ahead and think what the future is. For me, it was pretty clear that the future of cardiac surgery let me rephrase that. The, treat, the future of treating patients with heart disease is through less invasive techniques. And whether that be through cardiac surgery, whether it be wires, less is more. And I could tell you that I've never had a patient come to my office begging me for a synonymy. It just doesn't happen. What, what's really interesting, there's a psychology. People want less invasive approaches, even if long-term outcomes may be worse or maybe even more risky. And we see that. I'm not sure if you invest in stocks, but but a lot of people will go for the short-term gain. But we know that if you kind of put the money in stocks and, and kind of conservative stocks in the long term, it'll pay its way in dividends. But people still kind of tend to gravitate toward the short-term gain. Similarly, a lot of people prefer less invasive approaches, even though it may or may not be better. That said, with a lot of minimally invasive approaches that I do, it actually is a lot of good data that it's better. Uh, and, and, and I have to admit, I try to stand on any soapbox that I, I can, any platform that I can to espouse less invasive approaches to mitral disease and avoiding the stranotomy, less invasive approaches for the aortic valve. Again, trying to avoid the stranotomy. There's a time and place for it. I'm very comfortable doing complex adult redos and, and whatnot. But I think that uh, the data is actually relatively uh, 
convincing and overwhelming now. I think the trans catheter space is, is something different that that's still developing. But I think as surgeons, we can't reflexively deny the space because if we do, then it's gonna um, surpass us pretty quickly and we're gonna miss a train. And, and I've obviously written, written uh, a lot of editorials on that and, and given talks on that. So I think it's a, so important for us to approach our future like a chess match. And that future is gonna involve less invasive trans catheter approaches and we need to embrace it, not only for ourselves, but also in how we train our, our residents and fellows. Now, your trans catheter techniques, obviously you did a, a, a catheter fellowship, at, trans catheter fellowship at Emory, but you know, especially a lot of your complex minimally invasive cardiac surgery, did you pick that up as faculty or what was your algorithm to obtain those techniques? I picked it up as a faculty. I, I was, again, going back, I was very lucky to have incredible mentors in Houston when I got here that supported me. We didn't have a, a robust surgical valve program. Dr. Hazem Safi and Dr. Tony Astura, as a first year faculty said, faculty said, hey, Tom, you're going to run our valve program. Go out there and do it. And they trusted me. And, and even having not done a whole lot of mitral repairs, you know, they would go around telling people, hey, Tom's our micro repair guy. So I knew I needed to learn it. And um, my, my algorithm was, was relatively simple. Um, obviously, do your due diligence. I went out there and visited as many people as possible to try to learn their techniques, uh, develop relationships with them because it's, it's an um, ongoing process. I came back, I operated. And then the other aspect I think is important is after you operate, you kind of choose a, a relatively straightforward case. You go back again. And you realize, well, hey, you know, I had some problems really, you know, exposing the, the, the mitral valve. What was I doing wrong? And sometimes, as you know, most of the times it's something very little, but it, that little thing can make a huge difference. So, so I did some cases, went out and then visited some more people, visited the same people. I have a lot of mentors out there who, who taught me and then, uh, and then came back and, and just started to slowly grow our program. Now, I would say at our program, about maybe 90, 95% of mitral valve repairs are done minimally invasively through a small right thoracotomy approach. Now you taught yourself these techniques, but it, it sounds like perhaps the future of cardiothoracic surgery in your mind are these techniques. You know, you, you post a lot of uh, videos which are, are really helpful and people conceptually understanding that these things are possible. Now that you are a chief, what is your sort of di dissemination plan for uh, really having these techniques and then the next iteration, the next generation of these techniques as people develop them, take a hold in our specialty and be more prevalent in our specialty. I, I'll, I'll rephrase something you said a little bit. I think that these minimally techniques are not only the future of cardiothoracic surgery, but it's the future of treating patients with heart disease. And I think it's even bigger than that. So I think it's not even if, I know for sure that it will happen and it already has happened. I, I feel very strongly that if we don't embrace it, you know, there is a potential that we may be extinct. Again, whether it be transcatheter approaches or, or less invasive approaches. The dissemination plan, as you know, and, and you are, you're very involved with uh, education of our residents as, uh, as well. I believe that there really needs to be a paradigm shift in the way we train our residents. I feel that technology and the advancement in our field has uh, moved at a rate much faster than the rate of our, the curriculum and the algorithm for training cardiothoracic surgery residents. 
for example, we know that transcatheter uh, skills are important, but are our fellows graduating being able to do transcatheter aortic valve replacements or mitral valve repairs with MitralClip? No, right? Are we, I recognize the importance of most of our workforce doing um, both cardiac and thoracic, but there are a subset that want to focus in either on valves or coronaries or aortic. And can they get there without having to do an additional fellowship? I, I think we, we need to really revise our training paradigm. That's on the education level. On the, on the higher level, it is, uh, I think we convince people about the technique through data. <clears throat> and I, I try to get involved as much as possible with research in this uh, minimal invasive uh, and transcatheter space to again, convince people that the outcomes are actually pretty good. And hopefully with that, people will begin to adopt it. The last thing I wanna say is that, you know, and I wrote a paper on this as well. I think a lot of it has to do with culture. And we hear this all the time, you know, organizations are led by culture. And in the United States, about 25% of mitrals are done less invasively. In Europe, it's about 50%. In Vietnam, which is, you know, the country that I left and war-torn Vietnam has now kind of gone out of that, about 80% are done less invasively. Because the, from a cultural standpoint, there's, there's more of this embrace, like, hey, we're going to start doing less invasive approaches, and they, and they were able to do it. Now, you talk about culture in regards to our, the treatment of cardiovascular disease culturally, either within our nation or globally, differs. And oftentimes, in order to change culture, you have to have an empathetic view of, of, of the culture, uh, and you have to um, uh, have a perspective of how to to change that culture in it maybe in a gradated manner as opposed to a zero to 60 manner. When we talk about diversity in sort of the modern sense of the word diversity, we view it as cognitive perspective and the ability for cognitive perspective to, to promote innovation and uh, cognitive perspective to optimize uh, culture. Do you think your background in regards to sort of navigating the move to the United States as a refugee and sort of navigating your success in Houston in the immigrant population and learning the culture of Houston, has that helped you to put, develop an eye for innovation? So an eye for new things, new approaches, and then convincing those around you that those innovations are not scary. It has. My life path has been complete out of the box uh, and very unconventional. And with that, and when I work with, again, residents and, and students, and I tell them, hey, when you approach your career, you know, think outside the box. So with me, you know, and using that approach and that, that, that kind of, um, that tactic, I, I always try to think outside the box uh, with any problem that we have uh, and try to innovate. But I also recognize that as a field, we're still a relatively risk-averse field, and we probably need to be, but I think to a certain extent that does need to change. So where do you see our specialty 20 years from now? In 20 years, you'll be roughly about 45 years old. Um, <laughs> so what, what are we doing? I, I don't want to say, I don't want to ask you, you know, uh, where, where is CT surgery going in a few years, because you're already probably about five years ahead of the curve in regards to your, your memory invasive surgery. But what does cardiothoracic surgery look like 20 years from now? And 
where where are we? How are we in relationship to our communities? I think we will continue to do less invasive approaches for the treatment of of heart disease. That includes valves, that includes coronary, that includes aortic work. I think the future, we will still be doing strenotomies. We're going to be operating on more complex cases, and there will still be a need to have good surgeons. But I I think that the surgeons, um, the successful surgeons, will be able to do a little bit of combination of both. Um, I imagine, and and this is my pie-in-the-sky vision, that ultimately we're really not known as cardiothoracic surgeons uh, at all. We're known as specialists. And I think that kind of helps change things a little bit. We'll be known as valve specialists and someone who can approach the mitral valve or York valve either via a wire or via a small incision or via a sternotomy. A lung specialist that can either do a thoracotomy or a VATS procedure or a bronchoscopic uh, 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 option. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, the way the paradigm is currently set, we're, we're biased, right? You know, because you and I work with scalpels, every solution is going to involve the scalpel to some extent. But our colleagues, whether they work with scopes or with wires, of course, their solution is going to involve that as well. But I think if you change the mindset and we really kind of focus on the specialist that treats the disease, then ultimately that will be better for patient care and that will hopefully erase some of the the biases that ultimately dictate what we do for our patients. Well, great. You know, the future is bright and for our specialty, but also the future is bright for you as well. Thank you, Dr. Tom C. Nguyen, uh, incoming chief of the Division of Adult Cardiothoracic Surgery at ECSF. It was a a pleasure uh, hearing your story, very inspiring. And I continue to look for all the exciting things that you'll be doing. I'd offer to help you uh, pack and load loaded trucks, but uh, I I live several thousand miles away. So, well, I'll be I'll be moving in your neighborhood relatively soon, uh, Dr. Cook. Again, I appreciate the opportunity to to be interviewed and uh, applaud both you and and Dr. Tom Bergis and the STS for putting this outstanding series together. I really feel honored and humbled to be uh, involved with this series. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.